Now let's open our Bibles to the book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter. We come to a passage that perhaps you've not contemplated in any depth or detail, and certainly the detail will be lacking in a Sunday evening service. But nonetheless, I pray that it will be a blessing and benefit to you as we are encouraged by this fifth night vision of Zechariah, the fourth chapter of Zechariah. Let us pray before we read these first 14 verses. Almighty God, we know that the Lord Jesus, our ascended Savior, poured out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and that there is much about Pentecost that is unique and unrepeatable. But we also know that there is much that is not intended to be unique and unrepeatable, that you continue to pour forth your Spirit and to call sinners to to trust in Christ, to come out of darkness into light, and that you illumine the page of Scripture and help us to understand that Christ is on every page and how this applies to our lives and hearts. May we, as we come to this magnificent prophecy, strange to our ears undoubtedly, but nonetheless filled with wondrous truth, may we find that we as a church are encouraged by what you reveal to us here in this holy scripture. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, you know that this book of Zechariah is written to those who have returned from Babylon so that 
they might rebuild the fallen temple in Jerusalem. Haggai the prophet is constantly encouraging them to get on with the rebuilding. Zechariah is emphasizing that as the temple is rebuilt, we need to be faithful to the covenant of God and to receive the promising encouragements that God gives us in the process. Now, tell me if it isn't so that we are often discouraged both in the church and in our lives by our own lack of progress. Things seem to move ever so slowly. In my own life, how I wish that that temptation, that that sin were dealt with all at once. How I wish that my growth in grace were greater than it is. And in the church, how we long to see the churches filled with new converts. How we long to see it happen overnight. How we desire to see the church grow and to prosper. And yet, often, these things in our lives and in the church are slow in coming. Well, the text is addressing that very thing. The discouragement that can come to us when it seems as if the progress is very, very slow or almost minuscule. Now, there are two things about the Old Testament that I hope that you really understand and note as we often preach Old Testament texts, and especially in Vespers on Wednesday evening. And it is that, first of all, Christ is the theme of the Old Testament. It's all about Christ, as is all of the Bible. And also that the Word of God is filled with encouraging promises to the people of God. It is filled with wonderful encouragement. Now we come then to this very strange to our ears night vision, this fifth night vision that was given to Zechariah the prophet as he encourages the rebuilding of the temple as they have returned from Babylon in the spirit of the covenant of grace that God has made with his people. And the progress is so slow, and the progress is so very small. What does God have to say to us about that in the church today? Well, first of all, we need to understand this passage. And so, first thing we see is the golden lampstand. We're told in the text as we begin chapter 4 that there's this candlestick of gold with a bowl that is on top having seven lamps, each lamp with seven feeding tubes. So there are 49 feeding tubes in all, giving oil perpetually to feed the lamp so that they continue to shine brightly. There are two olive trees that are beside the candlestick, pouring a constant supply of oil. And in addition to this, the text mentions the two anointed ones down in verse 14. Literally, it should be translated, two sons of oil. The prophet then inquires in verses 4 and 5 of the meaning of this. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these things are? I said, No, my Lord. Now before we move to the meaning of the passage, I think the second thing we need to do is give some interpretation of the symbolism of the vision. Now the text actually doesn't unpack that for us. He doesn't give to us explicit instructions about what the lampstand means and the trees and the oil and so forth, but we are left to the analogy of faith, that is, comparing Scripture with Scripture. These are symbols that are used so frequently in Scripture that it's not really difficult for us to understand what the prophet has in mind. When he speaks of the lamp, of course, that is the symbol representing the church here in her Old Testament form. In the holy place, the seven lamps were lighted every evening and burned through the night, a light shining in the dark place. And in Revelation 1.20, the candlesticks are the seven churches. 
And Jesus walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks, the seven churches, as by divine inspiration, John borrows in his apocalyptic book from this apocalyptic book, this symbol, and from other places in the scripture. So the lamp represents the church in her Old Testament form. Again, we find that the oil is poured in so that the lamps will be lighted and so that they will give off their their brilliance. But that's not difficult for us to understand either because oil is consistently throughout the Bible a symbol of the Holy Spirit, is it not? And so the oil represents the operations of the Holy Spirit within the church again in her Old Testament form here because the source of grace to the church is, ever has been, and ever will be the Holy Spirit. The church only radiates because of her source, which is the spirit of the living God that indwells her. And so the perpetual source of grace is the person, the third person of the Trinity, the blessed Holy Spirit of God. Now the only thing that I think that may be a little bit difficult to interpret, not the lamp, not the oil, are the two anointed ones, for we come to the end of the passage in verse 14, and he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. But if we read Zechariah on the whole, I don't think it's difficult for us to understand, because there were two representatives that pointed to the priestly office of Christ, ultimately, and to the kingly office of Christ, ultimately. Those were, of course, Joshua, the high priest of the people of God at this stage in history in the 6th century B.C. And there also was Zerubbabel, who was the civic head. In other words, he functioned in a kingly way among the people of God. And so those who stand, the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth are undoubtedly Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the civic head of the people of God. All right, that's the symbolism. Do you have it? Do you understand it? The lamp is the church, the oil, the Holy Spirit. There are two offices pointing to the priest and to the king, ultimately beyond Joshua and Zerubbabel to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not difficult. I hope you have it. The third thing we then want to see is the meaning that is given to uh, the people of God through Zechariah the prophet. And I think for that we should reread verses 4 through 7. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? That is to say, these symbols that we've just just unpacked. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So what are these, my Lord? He asked the angel of the Lord. What are these? These are the word of God to you, answers the Lord. These are the word of God. These symbols are the word of God to you that come for your encouragement in the service to which God has now called you as the temple is to be rebuilt. And what is the meaning? What is the message? What is the encouragement that is sent to Zerubbabel through Zechariah the prophet? Well, the encouragement is this. There will be opposition. It will be like a mountain, but it will be leveled. You saw that, didn't you? In verse 7, who are you, a great mountain? 
Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Opposition, like a mountain that will be completely leveled. And through the work of God's Holy Spirit, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, this calling that I placed upon you to rebuild this temple, it's going to happen. It really is going to happen. The eyes of the Lord are on it in favor. We read, of course, that in verse 7, but all the way back in chapter 3, verse 9, we read, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, that's the high priest, and on the single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And so the seven eyes, of course, are upon this task, upon his people, upon Zerubbabel, as he leads the people of God in the rebuilding of the temple, which represents God's omniscience and God's wondrous sight of his people and care for his people in this great task to which he's called them. And so the message is this, would it not have encouraged you in the midst of this great task of rebuilding the temple? The message is, all of the obstacles that you'll face, though they be great, they are going to be removed. Whatever enemies come your way, they are going to be destroyed. Whatever hindrances to the kingdom of God at this stage in redemptive history, all of those hindrances are going to be dealt with in my sovereign power and might. Zerubbabel, you don't have a lot of visible resources. I know that. I've intended it that way, as a matter of fact. You don't have a great people. You don't have a people that uh, has a, a, a great number of skills. You do not have a people that seems to be empowered in any way. They're still under foreign domination. After all, they're here by permission. But the hand of the king, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he moveth it whithersoever he will. You are here by my appointment. I am going to see that these things happen. It doesn't matter what obstacles you face, Zerubbabel. All of those obstacles are going to be removed. I will flatten those obstacles into planes. So imagine that you are, that you are uh, coming upon Mont Blanc, and you look at the, the sides of this mountain, and you see that it's sheer rock, and that you cannot climb it, you cannot remove it, you could not blast it away, and yet God, in a moment, removes it, and it becomes a level ground. It becomes a plain. Obstacles which look like Swiss Alps now look like the cornfields of Illinois, just as flat and as long as they could possibly be. And so he says, again, reading verse 9, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. It is going to happen. You will complete it because that is my promise to you. Now, did you notice that also there is a mild but real rebuke that comes to Zerubbabel and to the people of God as we see it in verse 10? For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Obviously then, there were not only probably outside of but within the people of God themselves, those who say, what are you talking about? Rebuild the temple. Where are we going to get the workmen? Where are we going to get the skilled labor? 
Where are we going to find those who are really able to do this thing? It's just a pipe dream. It's a silly thing. It's not going to happen. You're despising the day of small things, God says then to his people. The plumb line will be in the hand of Zerubbabel. That is to say, the walls will be built. He's going to see to it. The Lord is going to see to it that this thing that he has promised will come about and will happen for the people of God. God's work is not dependent upon your human resources. All that is done for the kingdom seems so very incredibly small, but to God they were glorious. They were a part of his wondrous plan to honor his son, Jesus Christ. And so do not, as one of the old commentators puts it, do not judge God's work by man's standard. To despair is to deny God himself. The top stone will be placed. You see that in verse 7 where he says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. The day is coming in which the walls will be built, the plumb line will be in Zerubbabel, the governor's hand, and the top stone will complete the building, the rebuilding of that temple. It's going to happen. It's going to happen with shouts, grace, grace to it, because it's all of grace from first to last. And God's eye is upon his church, his all-seeing eye, Jehovah's sleepless regard that he bestows upon his church. As one of the old commentators so beautifully puts it, the church is under God's providential, omnipotent, omniscient, wonderful, caring, loving, supernatural, supervising eye. Well, you say that's wonderful for Zerubbabel and the people of God then. What does this have to do with the success of the gospel now? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's answer it. The fourth thing we see is how will the gospel succeed? And I want to direct your attention, especially once again, to what the Lord says to Zerubbabel in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How will the gospel succeed in this day in which everywhere our culture despises it? How will the gospel succeed in which everywhere men and women and children are born dead in trespasses and sins and not only are careless about the gospel, but hate the gospel? How is the gospel to succeed in a world in which man rebels actively against God and cares nothing for the gospel? The answer to that question is the power of the Holy Spirit to apply the gospel and to complete the task that God has given to us in the commission to take the gospel to the world. Christ will accomplish his work. The ascended Christ poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. That spirit converted 3,000 people on that day. A few days later, 5,000 people. And so in one place at one time, it's one or two. In another, it's 5,000 at once. But God, the Holy Spirit, is accomplishing His purpose of salvation, applying the gospel to our hearts. 
And so we face these mountains, we face these obstacles. But the promise of this text is they will all be leveled before Zerubbabel. The top stone will be laid. Now, let me remind you once again of the various places in the New Testament that we could turn to in which we are reminded that the temple of God in the Old Testament but points to the church in this era in which we live between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. So that you are now the living stones being put together block on block on block on block on the foundation which is Christ. And the text says the day is coming in which the last block will be placed. The last of God's elect will be saved. The top stone will be placed and the word will be grace, grace to it. It will all be of grace from first to last. God's elect will be drawn and the last of his elect will be called. Don't we sing in that hymn, There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin. No more. All of those for whom Christ shed his blood will be drawn and called effectually by the Spirit of God. And all of the obstacles will be removed. And God the Holy Spirit will build his temple. And the last will be placed with a shout of grace, grace to it. It doesn't come by the church's involvement in politics and becoming a power broker. It doesn't come by the cleverness of the church. It doesn't come by the sword. It comes by oil. It comes by the Holy Spirit. It comes by God's divine power. And the world just sneers. You know, I was saying to my wife after, after the worship service this morning, we were eating our lunch together, and I say, what a throwback the ministers at Covenant Presbyterian Church are. What a throwback. What our culture must think. Here we're preaching the same thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in Britain in the 1960s and 70s. And when he preached it, they thought he was a throwback. And here we are preaching the same thing that Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached in the 19th century And when he preached it, they said, oh, that man, he's the last of the Puritans. There'll be never another one that preaches those things again. (laughs) And then here we are preaching the same thing that Jonathan Edwards preached to his congregation in the 18th century. Here we are preaching those same wonderful old gospel truths preached by the seraphic George Whitfield in the Great Awakening, here we are preaching the same, the same old gospel preached by Paul and preached by Jesus. Because human nature hasn't changed, the Great Commission hasn't changed, the call of the church hasn't changed, truth is unchanged. And there we are preaching these things in the knowledge, and this is so encouraging to me, that as the ministers in this congregation are a part of that great flow of ministers who have preached these truths from generations to generations to generations to generations, that God is building his temple in his own way, in his own time. He is adding those blocks to his temple 
And one preacher, one of these days, will undoubtedly be the last one to preach the gospel message. And that last one of God's elect will be placed on the top and Jesus will return. And there will be the shout, grace, grace, unto it. The top stone has been placed on the great temple of the church. And so you see, the answer to the question, how will the gospel succeed? is the very same answer that was given to the people of God way, way back then. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then let me say that your pastors have been thinking and talking and praying a great deal about revival in the church. And by that we don't mean what Charles Finney meant, something that we can produce by our own effort. We mean what God sends down, but for which we ought to pray and seek His face. How does revival come? Well, He blesses His ordinary means. And we do not despise when He blesses the ordinary means in the regular, ongoing way. But what a wonderful thing to pray. That God will again advance His kingdom with a powerful effusion of the Holy Spirit in the church in our land. Hasn't he done it in the past? Look at the Protestant Reformation when God said, let there be light and there was light all over Europe. The church had no strength then, none whatsoever. As with Zechariah, just as was true of Zerubbabel, just as was true of the church, no strength whatsoever. And yet God, the Holy Spirit, did this marvelous, wonderful thing of awakening. And so I'm asking you, are you praying for the work of the Holy Spirit, since our text says, not by might nor by power, no human instrumentality, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, are you praying that God, the Holy Spirit, will do this mighty and wonderful thing for us, for which we ask? Ask and it will be given to you. These things are for the people of God. God really desires these things for His people. Now, my wife has put into the little bookstore a book that many of you should read. Missions Conference is coming up. You should read The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. Because what is demonstrated in that book is that, is that the modern missions movement, about 1790 to the middle of the 19th century, the modern missions movement was spurred on, driven by the evangelistic Calvinism of the Puritans and by their belief in revival Christianity. Let me give you a couple of examples. James Buchanan in his book on the work of the Holy Spirit. Just just a couple of examples. In 1742, many parishes in Scotland were visited with times of refreshing. The parish of Campuslang near Glasgow, then under the pastoral charge of William McCulloch, was one of the first to be visited. After he had preached for about a year on the nature and necessity of regeneration, he was requested by about 90 heads of families to give them a weekly lecture. That means a midweek service. Prayer meetings were formed, and one after another, at the end of 50, in the same day, came to him in distress of mind. Fifty people came to him under conviction of sin. And after this, such was their thirst for the Word of God that he had to provide for them a sermon almost daily. And before the arrival of George Whitfield, 300 souls had been converted. 
when that eminent servant of God preached at the sacrament soon after, there were present 24 ministers and from 30 to 40,000 souls. 3,000 communicated at the tables, took the supper. Many of them from a great distance who carried with them to their several homes a savor of good things and not fewer than 400 belonging to the parish were enrolled in the minister's lists of having been converted that year. In the same year in the parish of Kilseth, then under the pastoral care of James Robe, who had labored for 30 years without any remarkable success, was visited first of all with violent fever and afterwards with famine without any salutary effect. The people are just unaffected. The minister was much discouraged but betook himself to prayer and soon some symptoms of growing seriousness appeared which rapidly ripened into a great spiritual revival. Sometimes 30, sometimes 40 were awakened in a week. In all, there were about 300 whose subsequent life attested the sincerity of their conversion. And history is replete with God the Holy Spirit's work in the church in these wonderful ways. And I simply bring these things to you because I want you to have an appetite for it. I want you to be on your knees praying for it. Did you know that there are ladies meeting every Sunday morning before the worship service, praying for the worship service and for your ministers as they preach the gospel? I didn't know that until last week. I was overwhelmed with gratitude. I don't even know who they are. I was overwhelmed with gratitude. Because when you see that happening, you see the fulfillment of this text, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so the success of the gospel, whether it be his ongoing and regular or through these mighty revivals, it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. The success of the gospel is assured and directed also in another way. And that is to say, the success of the gospel is directed by the priest king, Jesus Christ, Lord of his people and Lord of history. We have Joshua, the high priest of his people, during this era. Joshua, the high priest of his people, points beyond himself. He points to the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our priest who died for his people, our priest who shed his blood and whose blood is the labor for the cleansing of our sins, our priest who is the intercessor for our people, his people who is praying for us and leading us on to glory. Joshua the high priest points to Jesus the priest. And then we have Zerubbabel, who is the civic head of the people of God, who represents Christ our King. The government is upon his shoulders. You will recall that in Melchizedek both offices are found, and in Christ the offices are restored in one person. So that one of the old writers well said, As priest he expiates sin, as king he extirpates sin, as priest he purchases salvation, as king he keeps his purchase. And what the governor Zerubbabel has begun in building the earthly temple will be completed in a greater and more glorious manner by the true Zerubbabel, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the builder of his church. (laughs) 
I'm encouraged by this. Are you? Or are you? That this priest king of his people at work way back there in history telling us that this temple would be rebuilt, that all the obstacles like mountains will become like plains. Saying to Zerubbabel, this is the word of the Lord to you, now comes to his people tonight and says, look, I've given to you a calling too. I've given to you a commission too. You take that gospel so that the church will be built. And I want you to know that every obstacle will be removed and will become a plain. But there's another encouragement, a fifth point. And it's found by thinking of verse 10. This rebuke that comes. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And the encouragement is this. Do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. Small things, first of all, in your own life. You long for growth, I hope. You pray for growth. To you it seems so incredibly slow and so incredibly small. But what does God promise through the power of His Holy Spirit? God promises, Philippians 1.6, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's not going to leave you. He's going to grow you. He's going to mature you. And he's going to bring it to completion when Jesus Christ comes again. It seems slow, slow, but the promise is he will change you. He will transform you. He will grow you. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And then, do not despise small things in the church. Revival brings... Wonderful things, but it doesn't start with the magnificent movement of God's Spirit in ways that we can see. It starts. It starts as the way it did with the 59 revival in Ulster with an old couple that prayed off by themselves that God would send the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in that province. And before they died, they saw You must read about the 59 revival in Ulster. Truly, truly wonderful. It starts with these two old ladies on the Isle of Lewis in the 1940s praying that God would bless once again and return the young people to the church and give them a love for Jesus. So old they were they could no longer even attend worship. And then God's Spirit came down in sovereignty swept through the whole island, and the effects of that revival are felt to this very day. It starts by one person being convicted of his sin and getting on his knees before God and saying, Oh God, I believe and I repent and I give myself to you. Maybe one of you young people here. Maybe God will do that through you. Maybe God will bring you to faith and repentance, and maybe he will use you in this magnificent way. However he uses you is magnificent. And I look around at the church in our land, and I say, oh, how sad to see the doctrinal declension. How sad to see the declension in purity of worship. 
how terrible to see the declension in life that is the result of the doctrinal declension and the declension in worship. Yes, but Christ still works, and I will not despair. Does not Habakkuk 2.14 say, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? Does not Matthew 28, does not Jesus say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I've ascended. I poured out my spirit and not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, my commission will be fulfilled. And so, people of God, let this inspire you to service as it inspired the great missionary age so that there might be yet a greater missionary age in the church. Or take your pastors, your pastors here who need your prayers, who struggle in our growth in grace, who long to be holy men, who despise the iniquity that we find within our souls, who hate the the unholiness and want to be holy, holy men before God and before our flock. And then we labor and we see. It seems that we move forward and we move back. We move forward and we move back. And I look at this gathering tonight and how thankful I am you are here. Why is the place not full? Well, I don't despise the day of small things. Two years ago, it was smaller than this on Sunday nights. I believe that if God gives me life before he takes me home, this Sunday evening service is going to be filled to capacity because I'm praying for it. Because I'm depending upon the Holy Spirit to move in God's people. And I'm praying for that mighty revival in our midst. Well, let me bring it to conclusion. You know, in verse 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It is not by our human strength and pride that blessing comes. It is through the oil that brightens the lamps, through the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to shine. And when we are great in our own eyes, and when we think that we bring things about in our own abilities, then ichavod, ichabod. The glory is departed, is written over the church. No matter how many people are there, no matter what progress seems to be made, if it's made in the arm of the flesh, the glory has departed. And so what is needed, my friends, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures teach us that he will not, he will not hold back, but will give the Holy Spirit, to those who ask Him, will you pray for it? Will you pray for it? Will you find your heart stirred so that you pray for the church in our land that the Holy Spirit will pour out that blessing that is so desperately needed today? Remember how Jonathan Edwards spoke of the providence of God? It's in his history of redemption when he speaks of the providence of God as that long large river with innumerable branches. You have a tributary here and a tributary there and a stream here and a stream there. 
and they seem so inconsequential and so small, but they are all moving toward that one great and grand ocean, and they disgorge themselves. All of that movement of water disgorges into this wonderful ocean of the fulfillment of God's providential plan. And so it is with you and me that we seem to be so small in God's kingdom, to accomplish so little in God's kingdom, and yet there's the tributary, little rivulet of water that becomes a part of the whole and disgorges into the great fulfillment of God's eternal plan. It appears, says Edwards, like confusion to us, but as Edwards also reminds us, Not one of all the streams fails. Not one. Not one of all the streams fails. People of God, not one of all the streams fails. You, your stream, your rivulet, your contribution to the kingdom, not by your might, not by your power, but by the Spirit of God, not one is going to fail in the accomplishment of God's sovereign purpose to save His people and bring His church to completion. In a Sunday evening service like this, there still may be one who is lost and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, your great need, the great need of your heart, the great need of your life is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to come in regenerating power and to show you your sin and to open your eyes and to give you life and to raise you from the dead. And as we conclude in prayer, we're going to ask that the Lord will do that in your life. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, receive our praise that we are a part of your providential care and love for your people and that not one of the streams will fail. Not one rivulet will fail to accomplish the purpose that you are building your church, that the time will come in which the top stone will be added with shouts of grace, grace to it. And help us not to despair, but to believe that you are at work in the hearts and lives of people. And Lord, will you use us in that? Do not shelve us, Lord. Do not set us aside, but use Everyone here, use this church, that your church, universal, be built, not by might, nor by power. We have none, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And Father, will you now, in your kindness, Come into that heart that now despises you and hates the gospel and change that heart and save that sinner and make that dead block into a living stone to be added to the temple of your church. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.